from the game that I loved because I loved it so deeply. But you know what? When God calls you into ministry, you answer God's call. Now, as I played baseball, I was mostly a utility kind of player, but you would oftentimes find me on the pitching mound for our team. So one day I was pitching against um, probably one of the best teams in the league. I mean, these guys were huge. They were just these monsters and just an incredible bunch of 11-year-olds that you could possibly find, okay? Um, when I pitched, I had a little bit of an issue. Uh, there's a pitching rubber there and everything, and what I would do is when I pitched and came off the rubber, I would drag my foot and my toe. And on any normal field, that was really not that big of an issue. However, on the field we were playing on for this particular game, it was filled with these little teeny tiny little rocks. And it exposed a weakness that I never realized was there. Uh, from dragging my foot all those other times, it had opened up a, sh a hole in my shoe, and these little rocks were starting to get inside of my shoe. And uh, needless to say, it was getting to be a little painful. So I pitched through the first inning, and uh, it was just going from not too bad to not good at all. Um, and I got off the field and wasn't sure what in the world was going on, why I was having such a bad game. But I figured I'd go back out there. Hadn't made the connection that my toe was affecting how I was throwing. So I go back out for the second inning. And during the second inning, it was ugly. I mean, it was just ugly. To the point where the coaches were baffled. They were like, what in the world is going on? I mean, yeah, Keith might have a bad game, but this is just crazy. This is ridiculous. So they came out to the mound. And when they came out to the mound, I practically was begging them, take me out of the game so I can go fix my toe. I had finally made the connection as to what was going on. And they said, we can't take you out of the game. Because if we take you out of the game, we can't put you back in as pitcher. We've only got one other pitcher available to us. And of course, in Little League, there's certain rules about how long you can pitch and what you can do. So I had to finish the second inning. I finished it, it wasn't pretty, and I left the field in tears. Partly because my toe hurt so bad, and partly because I was feeling so horrible about how I was doing. All I wanted at that moment was for everybody who was witnessing this fiasco to know that I actually could pitch that it was just my holy shoe that was causing these problems. I wanted a shot at redemption. Well, between those innings, I took my shoe off, I cleaned up my foot, and I put bandages over that area of my foot, put it all back on, and headed back out for the third inning. And all my hopes were riding on this little bit of bandage that I was able to put on my toe. I'm going out there and I'm just like, okay, I'm hoping, I'm praying that this is going to work its way out. When I took the field and started to pitch, the pain was gone. And it was awesome. I was safe from those stupid teeny tiny little rocks. 
and I dominated the third inning. And I got my redemption. We have been working our way through the book of Ruth. And today is the climax of Ruth's redemption. But before we dive into Ruth's redemption, we're going to take a quick look back at why her redemption was so necessary. So, at the start of the book, we see a family that lives during the time of the judges um, that ruled over Israel. And a famine overtakes the town of Bethlehem in the region in that area. And Bethlehem is known as the house of bread, which the irony there is the house of bread has no bread, right? It's empty. It has no food at the time. So because of that, this family goes and they move to Moab. Now, we're going to be talking about them having to redeem the land. And chances are what took place is they sold the land to pay for their trip to move over to Moab so that they could be somewhere where they got food from. While they were in Moab, three very important things took place. Number one, Elimelech and Naomi's sons found wives. They got married. And so they built up their family more, built up the family stability more because of that. The second very important thing that took place, Elimelech passed away. The family patriarch died. And so now it's starting to weaken that family frame a little bit because the sons have not had any kids as of yet. The third very important thing that took place in Moab, the two sons passed away, leaving nothing but the ladies. And in that culture, that meant hopelessness. Naomi's situation was very, very hopeless. The uh, daughters-in-law, they had their opportunity. They had their shot. They could go back to their family. But Naomi's situation was hopeless. So she sent her daughters-in-law away, but one of them absolutely refused. Ruth said, no way, no how. I am sticking with you. I understand how hopeless your situation is, but your fate is going to be the same as mine. Or my fate is going to be the same as yours. However you want to say that. Now, after they get back to Bethlehem, the only way they can support themselves for a time is to glean grain in the field. And what this basically means is they follow behind the people who are actually picking the grain for the day, and they are picking up whatever leftovers they leave behind. Now, this can be a very dangerous thing, particularly for a woman. But Ruth just so happens to walk into the field that is owned by Boaz. And Boaz just so happens to be a person who is a kinsman redeemer for their family. And this idea of Boaz as a kinsman redeemer, I want to pick at it just a little bit here. Pastor Trevor has talked about this idea of kinsman redeemer in his past messages. The law provided for a family member to be able to purchase back any piece of land or any person that had been sold into slavery or land sold, and they could purchase that back for the family. So basically, if I fall on hard times and I have to sell my house and all my property, a family member could come in and help purchase that and buy it back for the family situation. If I felt so 
like so threatened uh, that I had to enter into servitude. Now when we use the word slavery in the Bible, it's different than what slavery, what we think of in America. It wasn't go capture somebody and bring them here. It was you enter into a servitude situation. You are voluntarily doing that because you have no other options. But a family member could step in and say, I'm going to buy this person back out of their situation. So this idea of family member is going to be very important as we're going to see in just a minute. But kinsman redeemer is easy enough to understand, right? It's the rich uncle that we always talk about who's going to come in and help us. Okay? We go, yeah, we got ourselves in this horrible situation and I'm just waiting for my rich uncle to come out and give a hand. Um, relative would have the authority to be able to help, but the other thing they had was they had the resources to be able to help as well. Now, this also goes into this idea of Boaz as a type of Christ. Um, this is something else that Pastor Trevor's talked about as well, and it can be a little confusing, and even theologians argue over different things about this. But here's what you need to know. A type, in theological terms, a type is a person, a place, a thing, or an event that is clearly pointing to a bigger or a greater reality. Usually you see it from the Old Testament pointing toward the New Testament. And I'll give you a, a simple example of one of these. The Old Testament sacrificial system is one of those things that we consider a type. And if you recall, uh, what they had to do to bring um, what they brought to the temple to, uh, to get their sins taken care of was a lamb or a sheep. Okay? Uh, that is pointing toward a greater reality. If you go back even further, you can go back to Moses and uh, when they were getting ready to leave Israel. When the Passover was instituted, they said, take a perfect, spotless, no blemishes on the lamb, and you're going to have a meal, and you're going to take that blood, and you're going to post it, post it over the door frame as a symbol that you are trusting in God for your redemption out of the nation of Israel. These stories all point to a greater reality of the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist stands there and Jesus is walking by and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of those stories in the Old Testament are pointing ahead to a greater reality of who Jesus Christ is. So that's understanding a little bit of that, but how is Boaz a type of Christ? Well, Boaz is from the tribe of Israel, or excuse me, tribe of Judah. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. That's a little cheap because they're the same family line. But it's a similarity. They're both from Bethlehem. Boaz is from Bethlehem. And if you recall, that's where Jesus went to be born because of the taxes and the situation there. They had to go back to Bethlehem for that. Um, Boaz regularly behaved and acted in a kind manner, going far and above what might be required of him. So this is, the Hebrew word is hased. It is uh, loving kindness. It is mercy. It is compassion. This is what Boaz is showing on a regular basis here. It means that Boaz is going far beyond what the law required or what public opinion requ would require. Similarly, 
Jesus acts in the same kind of manner, going much farther than ever he needed to really go. This is why we talk about things like the grace of God, right? Because that's what Jesus is doing. He is showing us his grace. Now, if you were able to watch Pastor Trevor's message online last week, uh, we got a little bit of a glimpse of this. But Boaz was a guy who made sure that he kept the law. We're going to see this today too. He knew what the law required, and he was going to be a fulfiller of the law. He's not going to break the law. In a greater way, Jesus came not to be a fulfiller of the law, but to be the fulfiller of the law. He was going to fulfill it in the ultimate and perfect sense. So, Boaz was a kinsman redeemer by, um, by virtue of being related to Elimelech. Boaz was the relative. Boaz had the resources to be able to help Naomi and Ruth. But, the question is, how is the Son of God related to us? And this is very important, so don't miss this. Adam, the father of the human race, got into a little bit of trouble. We all know this. He and his wife rebelled. Jesus, or they, God told them, don't do this one thing. And the one thing they said not to do, Adam and Eve went and did. They rebelled against God. And sin was ushered into the world. One of the consequences of sin is that the image of God was marred in us. Originally, God created us in his image. And what this means is, the theologians will talk about communicable attributes of God, which just simply means the things that we share in common with God. So, things like love, forgiveness, justice, truth, reason, knowledge, all of these things we share in common with God. However, because of what Adam and Eve did, all of those things became marred inside of us, and we had no way to correct it. This trouble that Adam and Eve started affected the whole family, and there has not been one member of the family that's been able to fix this issue. Until Jesus came. The Son of God is the one who has the resources to be able to fix the problem, but how is he a family member? Well, God's solution was simple. He was going to send his son to earth to become human just like us so that he would have both the relationship, he would be kin, and he would have the resources, he would be redeemer. So Jesus is our kinsman redeemer at that point. So, finishing up in Ruth. Ruth chapter 2, we see Ruth gleaning in the field. And Boaz inquires about her, provides for her, protects her, and he presents her with additional grain, which is something he did not have to do. So he is showing that he is incredibly generous and incredibly kind-hearted. Ruth chapter 3 comes along. Boaz, or excuse me, Ruth goes to Boaz and officially says, will you be our kinsman redeemer? Will you help us out of this horrible predicament that we are in? And in that situation, Boaz could have taken advantage of that situation, but he did not. He treated her with complete care and respect. 
And he says, oh, well, wait one, just, just one minute. There's one other kinsman redeemer ahead of me. And I have to go to that person first before I can just take this on and help you. But he said, don't worry. Tomorrow morning, I will have this taken care of. Now, enough about chapters 1, 2, and 3, because we have come for chapter 4. And chapter 4 is where everything has been leading. This is where we start getting excited. Will Ruth get her man? Will Naomi... Will her shame go away because of all that's taken place for Naomi? We don't have to wait any longer because guess what? We're in chapter 4 now. So, Ruth chapter 4, starting with verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gates and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer had mentioned, he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. If you will not... Tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, or excuse me, from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it because it might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to fi become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. So, the first thing that we see in Ruth chapter 4, we see that the redemption is being refused. Boaz heads up to the town gate, and now this is more than just a place where people enter and exit into town. If you remember, this is the time of the judges. And the way legal matters were handled was they went to the town gate, and the judges would, take, um, would listen to what is the business of the day, whatever needed to be uh, decided upon. In larger cities in Israel, uh, where they actually had large walls, you could actually find rooms dedicated for this purpose. They had rooms with seating in there and all kinds of stuff. In Bethlehem, which is where we're at, they had a space cleared out by the wall, and they would have seats along the wall so that everybody could sit down and hear what's going on. Uh, the text says, when the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along. Now, the only problem is this translation is missing something because what it actually says is this. When the kinsman redeemer happened to come along. It's something that has been focused on the entire book, which is the sovereignty of God. This man didn't just happen to come along. 
God is the one who is behind all of this. God is the one who is planning these things out. You keep seeing this. He happened to come along again and again. Sooner or later, you can't keep thinking that it's just happening. Boaz then takes it upon himself, and he grabs ten elders in the town so that they could discuss this issue. And the elders are basically the ones who are going to be witnesses to this for a legal transaction. Uh, they were basically acting as judges of the town. Boaz then explains, hey, we've got a common relative, Elimelech, whose widow is back and she is prepared to sell this land. There's a little bit of a problem. Widows have no land rights. So what is she selling? The other problem is the land has already been sold. So what is she selling? Well, what's taking place here is she is now giving up the right. The only right she has is to give up the right to a family member to be able to step in and redeem for them. That's the only thing that she can do. So that's what she's doing. She's stepping up and saying, I am now looking for a kinsman redeemer to help get this property back into the family and to help me and my family because we can't do this. We can't do what we need to do. Boaz continues to be polite as he explains all of this. And he tells him, hey, you've got first right. If you want it, take it. It's all yours. But if you don't, I stand ready right behind you and I'm, I've got it. No worries. So this man who is never named, and by the way, according to the text, it sounds like uh, Boaz actually referred to him as so-and-so. Okay? Or more or less, hey you, at the gate. He says, hey so-and-so, come over here. Okay? That's how he's referred to the, throughout this whole thing. So we don't know this guy's name. But his response is, sure, I'll redeem it. Now, let me explain to you why this guy was so anxious to basically sign on the dotted line for this. He hears that Naomi is trying to keep the property in the family and looking for a kinsman redeemer to help. Naomi is older, very possibly past childbearing years, and she has no heirs. So if so-and-so redeems the property, because there is no heir, basically he's just making an investment in the property. He's paying for the property and it's going to be his and no one's going to take it away from him. Now, for years I've never thought I would actually use these phrases, but uh, I'm now at the age where I can actually say, if, you can if you're old enough to remember this, so here we go, if you're old enough to remember Columbo, in a move that is reminiscent of Columbo, it's almost like Boaz is going, okay, great, take the land, my friend, no problem. There's just one more thing, okay? And he turns and says, guess what? Ruth comes with the package. There is a woman, Ruth the Moabitess, and you're going to have to marry her to keep that family line going. The law was very clear in those days that the nearest relative would marry the widow so that the man might have children and carry on his family. And this is why, if you go to the New Testament, you'll probably remember this story. Uh, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they try and trick Jesus. And they say, Jesus, there's a husband and wife, 
they're married, and the husband dies, doesn't have any kids. But he does have brothers. He's got six brothers. And so the wife marries the next brother. And he dies and leaves no kids. So he goes to brother number three, or she goes to brother number three, and they get married. No kids. He dies. Now, personally, if I was brother number four, five, or six, I would be getting a little worried at this point. The uh, Pharisees take it all the way through, and then basically they say, whose wife is she going to be in the afterlife? And Jesus is like, you guys are getting this so wrong, okay? But this is the backstory. This is the backlog, okay, of where that came from. This is the law that that came from. So, so-and-so's response is, you know what? If Ruth comes with the package, I cannot be the kinsman redeemer. It might endanger my estate. Now, remember what I said, that he was ready to sign on the dotted line because basically he gets the property free and clear. So here's what we think is probably taking place here. Ruth enters into the picture and now there is a responsibility to produce an heir. There's going to have to be an heir. So if Ruth does have a child, that child is going to get the land. So-and-so is now out whatever he paid for the land, whatever money he's spending on Naomi to live with them, whatever money he's spending on Ruth, whatever money he spends on Ruth's kids, however many kids they may have, and to top it all off, any kids that he has with Ruth may have a legitimate claim to any of the inheritance, any of his money that he had, and any of his land that he had before Ruth ever came into the picture. So you can just hear the adding machine in his head going, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. This is getting expensive. If I marry Ruth, it's putting my future in jeopardy. The final part of the section sounds a little bit strange, but it's basically a parenthetical statement that the author sticks in here. And let me explain this to you. The author is writing probably 120 to 200 years past when these events took place. So people for the time that he is writing, don't even understand what this next thing is that he's about to describe. It would be a little like any of us trying to describe certain cultural things from 1821. How many of us know all the cultural things from 1821? We might need a little explanation. That's what the author's doing. And he's saying that he took off his sandal and gave it to Boaz as a... Uh, uh, transaction, as a means of transaction. What we believe is going on here is this. To mark out a piece of property, you would walk that piece of property. No matter how large it was, no matter how many days it took, you would walk that piece of property. So the symbol for that land transaction was the sandal that you were wearing because you had literally walked that piece of property off. So that's why that whole sentence is in there. Um, through this section, one of the things that I see very plainly is that Boaz does not sit back and wait. Boaz is taking the initiative through this whole thing. He knew how desperate their situation was, and he wasn't going to waste one moment on it. Boaz went to the town gate. 
he asked for so-and-so to come on over. Boaz went and found ten elders to hear the case. And then Boaz takes and explains the entire situation to the whole group so everybody understands what's going on so that they can now render a judgment on what's taking place. And in this, Boaz reminds me of Jesus. Because Jesus took the initiative on our part. Our situation is desperate, just like Ruth and Naomi's. Our image of God is marred inside of us. We are broken. We are sinful. We have got no hope before God. We stand condemned before God. The prosecuting attorneys have got a mountain of evidence against us, and our entire defense is, sorry, that's the best we got. The two greatest words that you will ever hear in the entire Bible are these. But God. And it starts off a wonderful verse. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, choosing our own way, not caring about God, not understanding his great love, not caring at all, not recognizing that the image of God was messed up in us and there is something greater. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why I say these are the two greatest words in all the Bible. We didn't have the slightest clue that we needed God, but God took the initiative by sending Jesus Christ, by dying on the cross for our sins, so that we could have that restored relationship. We could have the image of God restored in us. But something else I also see in this little section is just the wisdom of Boaz. Uh, Boaz basically gets so-and-so's mouth watering over this uh, land transaction. It's like basically free land, no strings attached, it's going to be wonderful, it's awesome. And then Boaz brings out Ruth. It's like he kind of tucked her away. He goes, hey, and by the way, here's the responsibility that comes with the land. It is the person who's now kind of throwing a monkey wrench in the situation, but it's also the person who deserves love and care and assistance. It's like Boaz knew that someone would snatch up the land, but might think twice if there was going to be some more responsibility involved in things. So, in these dark moments for Ruth and Naomi, they have turned to their kinsman redeemer for help. And they have received grace and protection and provision, but they're also receiving wisdom from Boaz. And the reality is, when we turn to our kinsman redeemer, we receive grace and protection and provision, but we also receive wisdom. Wisdom that we didn't realize that we even needed. And if you remember, James chapter 1 verse 5 simply says, if any of you need, needs wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all. If we need that wisdom, we need to be seeking our kinsman redeemer. Well, next section. The redemption winds up being accomplished in verses 9 through 12. We'll start with verse 9. 
Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's, wife, or Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrath and be famous in Bethlehem. Uh, through the uh, offspring of the Lord gives you by his young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Um, we knew that redemption was coming for Ruth and Naomi one way or another because Boaz basically proclaimed it. He said, I'm going to take care of you ladies. Don't worry about that one little bit. But up until this moment, Ruth's heart had to kind of be up in her throat, right? Because she had spent all this time getting to know Boaz Getting to know this man who is so generous, who is so caring, who is so kind to her and her family. And she goes, he's a kinsman redeemer. That's awesome. And then she hears, but wait, there's a one ahead of him. And he's going to make sure that things are handled properly. She's probably thinking, oh my goodness, how could this be? Now I'm going to have to go with maybe someone else. Um, the legal transaction closes with Boaz announcing the final results to the elders and basically anybody else who's standing there. It's kind of like reading back the court stenographer. Um, but it shows that Boaz has moved from being a kinsman redeemer, like someone in the line, to being the kinsman redeemer for Naomi and the family. But it's also important to note that with one legal transaction, Boaz has redeemed a Jewish family and a Moabite woman. He's redeemed the Jews and he's redeemed the Gentiles in one transaction. And, again, pointing forward toward Christ, Christ on the cross in one transaction set it up so that any Jew any Gentile who comes to their kinsman redeemer and puts their faith and trust in him will be saved. What's interesting in this is the elder's blessing. Today, like when I've done weddings and things like that, usually when I pray for the couple, I pray for things like love and understanding and grace, security for them, uh, for them to be godly spouses to each other, for them to be godly parents to their children when the children come along. Back in that time, the prayer was real simple. God, give them lots of kids, okay? Make their family huge. Give them lots of children. Because reproduction at that time was kind of considered this um, blessing of God. Um, but what may be more extraordinary is this. All these people are now asking for Ruth, the foreigner, the Moabitess, the Gentile, someone who is outside of Israel, to now be counted with the matriarchs of Israel. Rachel and Leah started off the nation of Israel. 
And now they're praying and saying, God, please let her be famous like Rachel and Leah and all these other people who started the nation. And the only way that you can kind of explain that one is by what Boaz said back in uh, chapter 2. He said, you know what? I've taken notice of the fact that you have been so helpful to your mother-in-law that you left your people and came to a bunch of people that you did not even know and now she is being blessed for it. She is being noticed by the entire town for what she has done and how she has been faithful, obedient, and committed in this situation. And the verses here tell me something real important. Um, it may take time, but God's plan is always best. It may take time for God's plan to unfold, but it's always best. God's plan may take you through pain in life, but we have to trust that God will bring us out the other side. So, before moving to uh, Michigan, I was down to my last thousand dollars. And I was sitting there at that age going, I'm going to have to move back in with my parents. This is not going to be pretty. Why is this happening? And yet, just when I needed it, God got me where I needed to be. Uh, before I moved here, I was working at the furniture store. And I was sitting there going, okay, now I feel like I've been kind of put up on the shelf. And I'm not being used the way I could be. I'm not following my passions. I'm not being used. And it was painful not to do the kinds of things that I liked to do, that I have a passion to do. But what I wasn't understanding is God was actually putting me there for a reason. He was putting me there to give me rest that I didn't really even realize that I needed at the time. And here's the other thing. If I ever get married, I promise you I will be standing up here one day going, it may have been painful during those years, but it was worth it. All right? It was worth it to wait for the woman that God brings into my life that way. And here's the thing. Chances are that you have had or are going through an experience where you are waiting on God's plan and it seems frustrating or painful. The experiences you're going through may seem painful or maybe it's the waiting that seems painful. It's frustrating because you don't know what that next step is and you're just kind of going out of your mind on these things. But I promise you, waiting on God's plan, actively seeking after Him, is always going to be worth it. The last thing. We see the redemption has a reward. Verses 13 through 17. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and cared for him. 
the women there or living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Now, verse 13 probably does not need a whole lot of explanation. They got married. They did what married people do. Poof, there's a kid. We get it, okay? Um, but here's the thing. It says that God enabled her to conceive. And for the doubters out there um, who want to say things like, you know what, when husbands and wives get together and do husband and wifely things, that's what happens. There's no need to bring God into the equation. Let me point out a couple quick things. They live in a culture that values and even judges you by how blessed you are, by how blessed you are in having kids. Second, Ruth was married before. She was married for 10 years. And don't tell me that Malon and Ruth were not trying to have kids because that's how you expand the family. That's how you provide security. That's how things grow in that, that way. And that's how people perceive God's blessing in your life. So there is little doubt that they were trying. And here's the other thing. When Elimelech passed away, when the patriarch of the family passed away, and just Malon and Kilian are left, we don't know how much time frame there was between his passing away and the two sons passing away. But I'm sure when dad passed away, they're going, we got to get the family going here, guys. We need to get rolling because that's going to provide security for the future and everything. That's how they perceived everything and that's how it worked then. So when the text says that the Lord enabled her to conceive, it's not kidding. God was actively involved in this process. It is yet another one of the fingerprints of God and his sovereignty that we see throughout the whole story. We see over and over again, it just so happened, it just so happened, it just so happened. God allowed, God enabled. If you read this story and you keep seeing that over and over and over again, at some point you have to throw up your hands and go, there's a plan behind this. There is not a just so happened all the way through. There's actually a plan to this, and it's God's plan. But see what happens to Naomi. At the beginning of the book, Naomi's life becomes shattered. Within just the first couple of verses, her life becomes shattered to the point where she says, don't call me Naomi any longer. Call me Mara, which means bitterness, because God has made my life bitter. Yet, because both Naomi and Ruth were obedient, God brings redemption and he brings restoration. God brings a kinsman redeemer that is actually incredibly gracious to them and caring and eventually provides a child, an heir, and a namesake for the family. So, uh, I plan to, to end this way. We're going to end just slightly different. Um, if you haven't got your storybook ending, Okay, we're watching the storybook ending of Ruth and Naomi at the end and all is well. They finally have the child. Everything is moving forward and it's all going great. And you're sitting there going, I am still waiting for my storybook ending. I, I'm, still back, I'm still back in that painful part you were talking about, Pastor Keith. I'm still waiting and frustrated. I'm still waiting on God's plan. Here's what I'm going to ask. If 
that's you. If you are in a situation like that where you are feeling like you are waiting on something from God and waiting for him to answer and respond, just going to ask you to raise your hand because I'm just going to pray as we close and just pray for you guys. We're not going to point you out, not going to any of that kind of stuff. But if that's you, just ask that you raise a quick hand. And then I'm going to close this in prayer. All right, let's pray. Father God, um, thanks for the lessons that we do learn from uh, the book of Ruth. Uh, Lord, thanks for just the, uh, um, the amazing way that you work, the way you work in people's lives, the way we see how you worked in Ruth and Boaz's life, and how you really were sovereign over everything. Father, for those of us who have admitted and said, hey, there's, there's things going on in my life that are a little bit painful, they're a little frustrating, and I'm kind of waiting on God to answer these things. And uh, I'm maybe growing impatient, maybe even feeling a little bitter. Lord, I pray for their hearts. I pray for um, just the answers that they're looking for, that you are going to prove yourself faithful, as you always do. That in your time, you are going to answer and respond to these things and that you are going to help um, each of these folks to, uh, to know that your presence is with them, to, uh, to see your fingerprints throughout their life, whether it's looking forward or looking backward in their life, Lord, I pray that they are going to be able to see your hand at work and how you have led them to the place where they need to be. Uh, Lord, I pray that you are going to develop and they are going to develop a rich relationship with you in that time period because that's part of all of this too is developing a deep, intimate relationship with you to really know, understand, and love your character more. So Lord, lift these folks to you. Uh, pray for each one of us as we think about some of these, uh, these lessons from the book of Ruth, that you would be helping us to apply them to our lives, not just hear them here and say, yes, that's wonderful, but Lord, that we would be remembering these things at the times that we need them in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.